are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hi, everyone. Happy Tuesday, not Monday, and welcome to another episode of the Win Win Podcast. This week's release is on a Tuesday because of Martin Luther King Day, and I did want to take the opportunity to share one of my favorite MLK quotes, which is, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, which I think is really applicable to both Women in Innovation's mission, as well as some of the concepts and conversational points that we touch on today with today's guest, who is Neetu Rajpal, the Chief Technology Officer at Oscar Health. Oscar Health is a publicly traded company founded in 2012, which is on a mission to reinvent health insurance. I know our audience for this podcast is global, and so what I will say is that the way that the health insurance system works in the United States is really particular and is frankly unaccessible on many, many levels, whether that's affordability, but also there are so many terms like deductible, copay, and premium. And as a result, a lot of people either don't have insurance or can go broke from the lack of understanding from something as simple as going to the hospital or going to the wrong doctor. Personally, I do think that health insurance is a human right, and this is extremely troubling, which is why I was really excited to speak to Neetu, who breaks down the problems and how she and her team are thinking about them in a really eloquent and inspiring way. Neetu is a truly empathetic person. She's an experienced leader who's been a CTO previously. She's also spent 18 and a half years at Microsoft and is just such a wealth of knowledge. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and bear with us through some of the audio issues. We do tape remotely and technology is not always our friend, but hopefully you can focus on what's important and that's the incredible leadership and innovation content that is this episode. Hi, Nitu. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. It's nice to meet you. I'm glad to be here. Yes, yeah, so glad to have you. I was looking forward to this conversation for so many reasons, but one being the fact that you're a brilliant example of the different directions and opportunities of what it means to have a career in innovation. So even just the tenure and the multitude of roles that you've had at Microsoft alone is so indicative of the opportunities in this industry. So I guess to start it off, I'd love to take it back to your 18 plus year tenure at Microsoft and hear about how you navigated having multiple careers in one place, especially switching from software engineering to product, but also generally? Um, Thank you. I think that's that's an incredible question. Yeah, I spent 18 years at Microsoft and um, for almost all of that, all of that time, I was chasing problems that I thought were interesting. And I would just focus very, very heavily on the problem solving and Given that I could do that under this umbrella of Microsoft, a very large company, I didn't have to worry so much about, you know, where's the next paycheck coming from? Do I have to go look for another job? Mm -hmm. Um, I just chased problems. And 
I wish I could tell you that it was a very, very thoughtful, fully planned out career. <laughs> it was not. It was very much a journey of self, self-discovery and just chasing problems. But I do think, and you know, I hear you, I, I'm at a big company myself, and I, I hear you on that stability being such a huge factor for almost in some senses a psychological safety around being able to play and, and fail and things. But at the same time, I feel like the specific time you were at Microsoft during the dot-com boom, and there was, you know, you were there during the financial crisis. So as far as like the different current events that were happening, how did that really impact your trajectory there? I think the dot-com boom was probably one of the biggest ones, as in, because there was the dot-com boom, there were a lot of interesting, innovative projects happening at Microsoft, and being aware of what was happening in the world, and how that tied back to how Microsoft was trying to push their own strategy, made it extremely interesting to where interesting problem spaces got created to go explore. It was no, I, I um, almost, I started my career at Microsoft in, with Internet Explorer 3. This was before the Netscape Internet Wars <laughs> um, or during just around that time. And it was very interesting to go solve and find these problems that felt just slightly out of reach. Um, and I think the current events just like brought into sharp focus some of the interesting pieces. Given that, there were actually some of the some of the current events that I completely ignored. So, I, I if there's anybody out there listening, I think there are always lots of interesting things happening in the world, and you always have to take those interesting things and put them through your own filter. I completely ignored the digital ad revolution mm. because that just. <laughs> At that time, I just wasn't very interested in it. So um, I think it's it can get really disorienting to just chase everything that's happening in current events. So a very, very strong focus on what is it that is interesting to you and then mapping it to the current events is, is something that I ended up doing. Um, once again, not a lot of foresight in being able to do that. It's just looking back, that's what I realized I ended up doing. Yeah, I mean, in my own career, I I definitely made a lot of changes, but I would say that those changes were really driven by curiosities, and I think that's where I've seen the most payoff, chasing things based on curiosity rather than, you know, what's trending and, and what's new. But I guess at the time, you know, when you were at Microsoft, for sure there's such a huge focus on STEM and women in STEM and uh, BIPOC folks in STEM. But at the time, I can imagine that in the 90s, there were not as many women and especially not as many women in software engineering. So how did you come into the software engineering space? What encouraged you to step into this unknown industry? Um, I, I immigrated to the U.S. as a high schooler, and when it was time to go to college, in very, very stereotypical fashion, my Indian parents told me that I could either be an engineer or a doctor. But all, all joking aside, I, I think it was primarily driven by my, my parents encouraging me to go do something that was, in fact, tied to math and science, which mm-hmm. happened to be things I liked very much and had the bend of uh, financial security in the future. 
So I ended up in computer science because it was recommended by my parents, and, and I had a lot of support around me. I had supportive professors, I had supportive friends. Colleges gave me scholarships because I had mm-hmm. no money. Um, mm-hmm. That was very important. And once I started studying it, it was just very, very interesting. I was, a lot of times, the only woman in the, in, in the team. Um, the number of rooms where I was the only woman was... I can't even remember. It was just countless number of mm-hmm. times when I was the only one. And I think over for, for a while, I didn't say anything in any room. And it was really intimidating, even though I didn't realize that I was intimidated only because I was alone. I thought I was intimidated because I was inexperienced. And I think that's mm-hmm. another thing that shows up quite a bit where... It's, it's hard to discern which portions of it is truly because of inexperience and which portions of it because of being one of only. I think over time, the desire to make an impact definitely overtook the fear of standing out or the knowledge that I was the only one. Over time, it just overtook. And I think it's it's probably not possible for me anymore to say quiet anytime I have something to say. I try to be very thoughtful about it, but it is, it is, it, it was learned behavior. I also think that these things are not so distinct, right? I'm sure there were moments where you were, you were inexperienced, right? And then I think that was probably exacerbated like by, by things like gender, right? But, but I guess I do wonder about this notion of being an immigrant. I'm an immigrant and I'm a very proud immigrant. Uh, I actually immigrated twice. So uh, my parents come from Russia and then I immigrated to Israel. And then from Israel, I immigrated to the United States. And I definitely see the immigrant mentality as as a big struggle, but also opportunity or, or growth mindset that I have. I'm curious whether you hold on to that immigrant identity or whether it plays a role in your life today. Um, I, you hit it right on the head, actually. I, I rely on my immigrant energy almost all the time. I think, I think my immigrant energy of just like walking into a space and saying, whatever there is a problem, I will try to solve it. Mm-hmm. I know I can try. As I've gotten older, I've gotten away from saying I can solve it. Um, because, mm-hmm. uh, but I know that I can try and, and I know that there is usually, and the adaptability, I think, probably helped me in so many different ways to just like, as a woman in STEM, there is no career path that is pre-laid out. There are very few um, examples that you can always reach out to. Thankfully, there are, there feel it feels like there are a few more now than used to be, but even then... There are very few people who you can talk to that say, yep, I know exactly what that feels like and I can help navigate or even to know to ask. So the immigrant mentality of like, I'm walking in, I have a growth mindset, I am adaptable, I will figure this out. I don't think there is any hour of any day I don't rely on it. I'm curious, you know, you were rising the ranks fairly quickly at Microsoft and in a really impressive manner, both across engineering and then product as well. So I guess I'm curious, did you say to yourself at one point, huh, I could be on the C-suite of a company, maybe this company, maybe another company? This is my second time with a C in front of my title. Um, (laughs) And 
honestly, the first time around, my then manager had to just like sit me down and tell me to go apply for the job. Wow. Um, so even, even having had all of these successes, it still took somebody else to tell me to go, go for it. So I think the whole um, imposter syndrome thing, it carries forward in so many different ways. And it's, I think I've been lucky. I've had very supportive people around me who will knock me on the head and go, you're not looking at it in another way. Go look at it in another way. So wherever you can, um, surround yourself with people who are vested in you as a person. And if I, if I may be so bold to ask, what do you think they saw in you that you didn't see? They saw in me competence and ability to lead and to argue a point in a way that I didn't see. It felt second nature to me. To them, it felt unique. I didn't see that it was unique. I thought it was normal. So where I thought I was average, they saw excellence. Touching on the immigrant point, when I came to the States, I knew that to get a visa, to even get employed, to even get considered for an internship, I had to be so much better than the rest. So my approach was like, do 10 internships in college and join this thing and run this club. And I don't want to say it felt normal to me because it took a lot of effort, but it was almost like I just did what I had to do, which it sounds like you had a, you had a similar experience. Yeah. After 18 years, you do decide to leave and you go to a Series B startup. My risk factor and my re- my risk red flags start shining and saying, well, what if it fails? What was sort of your criteria around that decision making or, or really like what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is not, not simple to go do those things. I also don't think that practically speaking – you have to know that your finances are in a position that you can take that risk. Mm. So you have to be able to ask yourself that question. What happens if this company goes under? Do I have a big enough nest egg that I can hang on for a few months? Do I feel adaptable and confident enough that if this went south, after a little bit of time, I could go like go get another job? All um, right. And also, I think another question is, how much am I going to regret it if I don't do this? And that, I think, seriously outweighed all of the other things for me, as in, I really, really wanted to try. I am really addicted to difficult problems and not doing it, actively choosing not to go after a very difficult problem, something that is very hard for me to do. But you have to know that because there is a cost to all of it. You are risking us so much. And if you happen to have a family and people who rely on you, then it's even harder. But at the end of the day, I choose not choose to live my life with no regrets. I don't want to be old and say, I should have, <laughs> could have, would have. Like, I, I want to try and fail. Trying and failing is a gift you can give yourself. Yeah, so much to do with innovation as a practice as well as I just think your your personal mission is what it sounds like. Speaking about complex problems, I, I think you've maybe, you've maybe chosen to solve the most complex one out of them all. I heard you speak uh, at Fast Company recently and you, you said that the U.S. healthcare industry spends more money than any other healthcare industry in the world. 
yet the outcomes are minimal. And I cannot agree more. I can say that as an immigrant, as somebody new to this country, I think the biggest culture shock to me was the healthcare. Uh, I mean, at this point today, seven years after being in this country, my only guidance is go to the in-network doctor and don't call the ambulance no matter what you do. And I know that that's (laughs) problematic. So I guess before you were at Oscar, what were your takes on healthcare? I think for a while before the ACA, Microsoft had a really great health plan, so I don't think I spent thinking any time thinking about mm-hmm, it at mm-hmm. all. And then I went to smaller companies, and the employer-supported health plans were all of a sudden not as great, and it was a huge shock, as in I didn't know how much anything cost. I didn't know how much money I would have to pay for anything I didn't get to opt out of being sick. Um, mm-hmm. and, and every time I thought about changing a job, what I never thought about before I started thinking about as in what is the healthcare situation going to be, I, I realized that soon I just tried avoid, started avoiding all sorts of doctors whatsoever because it just right. wasn't worth the headache. Um, and so that that was a huge um realization as in like healthcare definitely has like the whole spending problem and and doesn't has the problem of like consumers having no power whatsoever in the equation right. and no financial power but i think there are subsequent con- consequences as well of like how many more decisions do people make because of healthcare costs right so mm-hmm. how many more decisions do people how many jobs do they not change how many more how many dreams do they not go after how many companies have not been started because the person starting them wouldn't have health coverage um, or didn't have money to cover for you know a health plan so i think the consequences go far 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 beyond just finding the right doctor so to me it just felt like once again very very large problem um, I initially naively believed that a larger portion of it than really can be solved with just tech. It is not a tech-only problem. There's definitely a large portion of it that's tech, but it's not the biggest portion. And any dent I can make in it will feel like a success. Any dent. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to it. I agree. I agree. I'd love to to break that down and really hone in on the innovation as kind of on both sides of that coin. So knowing that you're the chief technology officer at Oscar, let's start with the tech. How do you think tech can help solve this problem? And, and in what ways are you thinking about it? To take a rather visceral example, when you go to the doctor's office, why do you not know how much you have to pay? Because it's Russian roulette. (laughs) Um, A lot of it has to do with not having the right real-time data around what is the service that you're getting or what is the the procedure the doctor's doing or what the cost is going to be and how the doctor's going to, which claims are going to end up in the insurance company's um, pipeline, how they're going to be adjusted how much if it is going to be because of your premium, how much, which part of incentives you have in your, ins- in your insurance plan. And at least all of that feels very much like a problem that can be solved with tech. If there was an easy way for the doctor to identify what it is that they are, they are helping you with, how to 
apply a cost to that and send it over immediately to the insurance company for ratification and get paid, you would know immediately before you walk out the door, your portion of this, this bill is going to be $40. And if you pay it right now, you're done. You never have to wait for the bill to come. You never have to be surprised by it. So I think even in the current regulatory environment and even in the current compliance and needs environment, this is something that is a problem that is solvable by tech. The This is something that I think we can move. And just doing this one thing will, will seriously alleviate the stress for the consumer walking into the doctor. It will also help the doctors quite a bit because every doctor's practice is also stressed out about how much they're going to get paid for any of their work and if there's a delay. So so that's just a simple example. It's like you sure, walk sure. into any store, you know exactly how much something's going to cost. That is not an option for healthcare. Why not? It should be. So that, and then you can extrapolate that to like multiple other things. It's like, why is it that your insurance plan is one of three that your employer provided? What if you really, really, really like playing soccer and are at really high risk of like twisting your ankle? Why can't mm-hmm. you get an insurance plan and buy up a few extra physical therapy appointments? Because you know you're probably going to need them in the year. Sure. Yeah, but all of those things and small innovations like that that make it convenient for consumers or for providers are held back by tech. I think the other part of my question is, I know that this is an industry that's heavily regulated, but like you said, having data, moving that data around, getting it to the right places or entities or organizations is going to be highly beneficial, right? But I'm sure as every person in technology and in business, there are several dilemmas of how do you handle that data? How do you treat it? And how do you use technology in a way that does help improve users' lives while also being careful and respectful of their data and privacy. What are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. And I think if we look back, there are some there are some patterns of how you can keep the data secure during in motion and at rest and while it's being used and and you can keep it secure and still make it interoperable. I don't think any of us used Venmo maybe five or six years ago. Right. right. Now it's part of our lives. Financial industry is just as regulated. Financial data is mm-hmm. just needs to be just as secure and is just as important. But we have figured out how to get to the other side of that problem. Sure. I think we could get to the other side of the healthcare problem also. And we can keep the data safe. We can keep it secure. We can keep it tight. Um, and I, I think all of those are solvable problems. It does require less fragmentation in the industry than there is now. And that's where the non-tech portions of the, of the challenge come in. So, Yeah, so, so I guess on that side, you know, why did you think, Oscar, outside of the technology piece that we talked about, why did you find it to be exciting or disruptive? What opportunities did you see for the company as a business, as a business model, solve the problems? I spent several months before joining Oscar just trying to figure out how to build a startup of my own in the healthcare space, and um, that did not go anywhere. But what I did learn were a couple of things, which is the health insurance business in the U.S. is is very old, and to be able to rethink it, you actually need a lot of control over the full value chain. 
and you need to be able to overhaul whole portions of the value chain. And as I looked around, there were like not very many companies who were doing that. Osco is one of the few, if not the only one, that is in fact deeply involved in a very tech-first, tech-forward way across the whole value chain. So, so ending up at Oscar was was not a coincidence. As in, as in, I didn't happen to find Oscar. I really went and looked out for something that was that would fit that bell, and it was Oscar. When I started talking to people at Oscar, the people are amazing. You know, they're. There almost everybody in my team is here because of because of a personal mission. In addition to having complex, interesting problems to solve and not compromising on your career growth and all sure. of that other good stuff, the problem space was personally meaningful to them, and that combined with empathy and compassion and and humility in the team, it was just it was they just bowled me over. Um, I joined the company nine days before the pandemic, and as soon as the pandemic hit, my very, very favorite health insurance company, the immediate reaction without a lot of thought was for the members, and that kind of sealed the deal for me. The, the first reaction for the company was, how do I make this better for the members to be able to, to engage in the, their new health care needs? And I can imagine you were not bored, not only starting a job pretty much in the pandemic, but also in, in, a, in a healthcare pandemic. So I think in your role, you interact with so many different people, not just as a member of the C-suite, but especially, you know, with engineering. I know that as a product manager, I work very, very closely with engineering and design as a whole. So I guess for you, really curious to understand how people who may be in the innovation space, whether they're on the side of design or business or product, what are the best ways that you can create innovation together? Like, what are your best practices for being innovative, uh, again, within as an engineer, but also working with the cross-functional partners? Yeah, I have a new emerging theory of what I think is required for, for deep and meaningful innovation. Um, I think we, I think this part is not new, which is you, you need a team of people who are not afraid to ask very difficult questions, but you also need the, the team that they ask the questions from to be emotionally stable, not to react to the difficultness of the question, but to step back and actually just hear the question and try to answer it, whichever, mm-hmm. whatever the answer may be. And the other part that I think is extremely important is giving yourself forcing yourself to have room for being wrong. I think when there is too much certainty about what an answer is, you are inevitably drawing a line. Certainty draws a line of how high up and how far you can go. And I think leaving some room for for being wrong and some room for learning, intentionally leaving some room for learning, will fill that space up with new and interesting things that you maybe didn't think about, but somebody else did, but you invited their ideas into that space. So I think those are those are my two new big things at the current moment, which is one, do not assign intent to the person asking the question and let that mm. question stand as a question and just attempt to answer the question. And two, intentionally leave room open for potentially being wrong so that that space can be filled by somebody else's ideas 
because it's the combination that you're going to find something interesting in. You know, I, I completely agree with you, but I think it does make me wonder, like taking just that, that first part, which is, you know, let the question be the question. I, the person who is asking the question and the person who is receiving it, in order to have that question stand alone, that ne- there needs to be a level of psychological safety. I think you in some ways mentioned mental health. To me, the question of culture, diversity is is can't really be uh, separated from that. So I guess, one, do you see it as separate from that? And if not, um, is there maybe a third component to your theory here? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I took I took it for granted that <laughs> that that you can in fact ask a difficult question, right? Um, so I think even asking the difficult question requires psychological safety, as in I'm not going to suffer some negative consequences just because I asked a difficult question. Um, mm-hmm. So absolutely, I think you. You absolutely need to, as every leader, needs to create an environment where it's okay for people to ask really difficult questions. I think it is important for the questions to be asked in a respectful manner. Correct, um, correct. But I think there needs to be no there need to be no bounds on the difficultness of the question. Right. Yeah. And I think before I ask one more innovation question, the last question that I wanted to ask was around, you know, your current position, you're a chief technology officer, you, you've really made it up the ranks and not in just one company and multiple, I guess, as an innovation leader, what do you think is really specific and exciting to you in innovation leadership? What do you think is most important about leadership and innovation? I think innovation, true and lasting innovation is only possible with the people that you do it with. So it's not just important to innovate for the sake of this one problem solving or this one scenario solving. I think it is true and lasting and meaningful when you create an environment that can happen on a small and large basis, on a regular basis, and you do it with the group of people and you share, you have to share the credit. And you have to create the environment of sharing the credit. It's always better to do things with other smart people. And so the last innovation question I'd love to ask you is both about you and your industry. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? One month from now, I hope we are we are on the other side of super awesome um, open enrollment period. Um, <laughs> as part of a health insurance company, open enrollment period is our is a busy and weird period, and and we are right in the midst of it. And I'm excited to see what this brings us. One year from now, I hope that there are additional small and medium size health plans that are operating on the same tech stack as Oscar and are successful at it and are seeing benefit and value from using this tech forward solution that we have built. And uh, 10 years from now, I can only hope, I can only hope that that consumers across the U.S. have more power and more say in what they spend their healthcare dollars on, have more choices, have more transparency around what you know providers or services they choose to employ, that they have more say in their own care. Um, that's what I hope for. 
completely stand there with you. And I think oftentimes when we talk about work, we say, you know, it's it's not life or death. But I think truly what you're focused on and the problems that you're solving are really matters of life and death. So thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you so much for your innovation. And of course, thank you for coming on this podcast today. Thank you very much for for inviting me. I'm very excited to have this have had this conversation. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.